We're going to continue our series looking at the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And the way we're going to be joining the story today is highly momentous. Nehemiah, if you remember, has just relocated to Jerusalem and he's moved there to lead the people in rebuilding the walls of the city. They've been in disrepair for the best part of 141 years, leaving the city prone to all kinds of enemy attack. But now, finally, the end is in sight. The walls are just about completed, people are just getting ready to hang the gates in place, and as soon as that's been done, then people can start moving back into the city. Homes can be built, schools can be opened up, businesses can be started, life can begin. So this was very, very strategic. And true to form, as has been the case pretty much throughout the course of Nehemiah's work, opposition rises up. Now, before we get into the story, I believe there's a crucially important lesson here for all of us. You see, so often, I think a lot of us are surprised when we face opposition. And I think the reason why a lot of us tend to be surprised is we tend to carry around this wrong mindset that says, well, if I'm doing the right thing, and if I'm faithfully serving God, then it's as though he owes me. He should bless me. He should give me an easy life. And of course, the flip side of this kind of thinking is whenever we're facing some kind of opposition, we can assume that it's because we've done something wrong. It's like God's punishing us in some way. And so, when we're working really hard to serve God and we're trying as best we can to make godly decisions and live pure lives, it can really throw us when opposition comes along. It's pretty shocking. We're discouraged. We're tempted to give up. Or we can assume that maybe God is blocking our path and wants us to do something completely different. I've seen this played out in so many people's lives. But if you think about it, if anyone deserved an easy life, if anyone deserved a smooth ride, surely it's Nehemiah. I mean, think of all the sacrifices he's made for God. Think of all he was achieving for God. But it's precisely because Nehemiah's work for God was proving to be so successful that he faced opposition. So important that we grasp this. Nehemiah didn't face opposition because he was doing something wrong. He faced opposition because he was actually doing something right. He was doing what God had called him to do. You see, we have an opponent, the devil, Satan. And his chief goal is to destroy the work of God. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 describes him as a roaring lion roaming around the earth looking for people to devour. We have an enemy who is actively looking to draw us away from God, to thwart the purposes of God in our lives, to ruin our lives. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come up against opposition. More often than not, it's actually a sign that we're doing something right. And that's certainly the case with Nehemiah. Over the last few weeks, we've seen, haven't we, how mockery and intimidation 
and discouragement and all kinds of internal quarrels all came along threatening to undermine what Nehemiah and the workers were doing. And now with the end in sight comes one final wave of attack. As we're going to see, it includes distraction, trying to get him off track, disgrace, trying to discredit him and ruin his reputation, and deceit, trying to intimidate him with lies. And then finally, there's an attempt to destroy him through disloyalty. And if we today are going to be serious in following God, I suggest a lot of us are going to face these same kinds of attack. But as we face them, we have the promise of Scripture that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That's the confidence, that's the hope we can have. This enemy is still under the rule of a sovereign God. It's not an equal battle. So as we look in a few moments at these attacks that Nehemiah faced, I don't want any of you to be fearful or discouraged. Rather, I want you to see through the enemy's schemes, his strategies, his tactics, and I want you to have even more faith that with God's help, you really can overcome them. Let's start reading in Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Nehemiah reports, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a single gap was left in it, though up to that time I hadn't set the doors in the gates, but Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Oh bit of a giveaway there. The first tactic used by the enemy is they try to get Nehemiah distracted from his mission. Nehemiah, if you remember, has been called by God to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and restore God's people. And so the enemy attempts to divert him, to get him off track, to do something different. It's very subtle. In fact, at first glance, it looks like a great opportunity. I mean, up until now, these guys have been nothing but trouble, and now they're offering to meet up and talk. Nehemiah must have been tempted to take them up on the offer. As far as he was aware, a whole lot of good could have come from it. But his mission was to finish the wall. And these guys are just trying to distract him from doing that. I think it's probably true for all of us. We've each got things that God has called us to do. Maybe there are family responsibilities that God's given us. Maybe there's some kind of responsibility in the church here. Maybe it's a case of just being faithful in your study or in your job, allowing your work to be part of your worship to God. Or maybe you have a specific sense that God has called you to something in the future. First thing you need to know is that when God calls you to do something for Him with your life, immediately there's going to be attempts to distract you, to divert you, to get you off doing something completely different. And these diversions, they come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. Sometimes Satan tries to divert us by getting us to go out and sin and just do really bad, wicked, awful, evil things that we really know we shouldn't be doing, thereby not doing what God has told us to do. 
But most of the time, it's actually a whole lot more subtle than that. God has something for us to do, and there are other things that aren't necessarily bad things. They might actually be pretty good things, but they are lesser priorities. And the point is simply that if Satan can't make you sin, he will try to keep you busy with things that are of lesser importance. Let me give you some examples. The mother or the father, who's so busy ferrying their kids around to all kinds of different activities, trying to give them the opportunities that they never had as children themselves. So busy ferrying their kids around to all these different activities that they neglect to spend any time with their children themselves. Or the husband or the wife, who's so passionate about their career that they kind of overlook their own spouse. Maybe their motivation is to try and make a living, earn some money for their family, but they end up missing their family in the whole thing. Or the student is so committed to the sports club or the sports clubs that they're a part of that they're always failing to hand in their assignments on time. Those kinds of things. None of them bad in and of themselves, But when they pull us away from our God-given responsibilities and priorities, then they're not so great. Nehemiah gets an invitation that could potentially distract him from the crucially important work that God has called him to do. But he says, they were scheming to harm me. He saw right through it all. He saw it was a plot and a ploy. This wasn't really the offer of genuine friendship. This was a diversionary tactic. They were scheming to harm me. Verse 3, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. Look, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. Each time I gave them the same answer. Now at first glance, don't you think this sounds really rather arrogant. I'm very busy. I'm busy doing important things, which is a subtle way of saying, and you're not important. How many of you, if you got that, you'd be like, who does he think he is? But it's true. He's busy. He's building this city, and they're trying to divert him. So he says, I can't take time out to spend time with you. I must stick to my priorities. How many of you right now, you you know what your priorities should be? You know that there are some things that God has laid on your heart, whether it's through the Holy Spirit or through prophecy, through your conscience, through scripture or some other means. You say, no, these are priorities in my life. This is where my time and my energy and my money has got to be going. But you divert it. You're constantly being taken off track. That's what I love about Nehemiah. First of all, he has discernment. We have to know, this is a good idea or this is a bad idea. So a trustworthy person, this person really, we can't trust them. This person's a friend, this person actually is against me. This is an attempt to sabotage something. This is an attempt to mend something that's broken. He sees through all of that. He has tremendous discernment. Second thing he does, he stays very, very focused on his mission. And then third thing he does, he practices the Christian discipline of saying no. Sometimes you just have to say 
No. And it's not that you don't love someone, it's just that you have other things that you need to be doing. It's not that you don't want to help, it's that you have other priorities that are more urgent. And so four times they come to him and say, can we meet up? No. Can we meet up? No. Can we meet up? No. Can we meet up? No! For the sake of your sanity, some of you desperately need to learn the art of saying no. No to things that aren't your priorities. No to things that could distract you from doing what God has called you to do. Then again, perhaps some of you are on the other side of the fence. It's like maybe you've learned the art of being pushy and rude and just guilting other people into buckling and doing what you want. For some, it's a trait that's parented into them from a young age. It's like, if I freak out, I get what I want. If I throw a tantrum, I get my own way. If I cry, I'm able to manipulate the outcome. If I push long and hard enough, I always get what I want in the end. If that's you, I want to urge you to cut some slack to the people around you. Don't be so pushy. Learn to take no as an answer. These guys around Nehemiah, they're pushy. Now here's the deal. God will give you certain priorities. And you need to stay focused on those things. Because God often allows us to go through these learning experiences with someone who's pushy, someone who's rude, someone who'll keep making demands of us, someone who doesn't just call, they keep on calling. Someone who doesn't just email, they kind of fill your whole inbox with emails. And they keep pushing and they keep demanding and they keep requesting and they make you feel so guilty. Nehemiah says no. Now for what it's worth, here's what this looks like in my life. Here are my responsibilities, here are my priorities, here are the things that God has called me to do. First of all, I'm a Christian. Of utmost priority to me is my personal walk with God. Second, I'm a husband. I'm married to Helen. God's given me responsibility to live out that responsibility and to honour her and care for her. Third, I'm a dad. I have responsibility for my two boys to be as good a dad as I can possibly be. And then fourth priority, and in this order, fourth priority is ministry in this church. But if I don't learn the art of saying no, then what they'll do, it'll ruin my relationship with Helen because she'll never see me. It'll ruin my kids because they'll never see their dad. may even ruin my relationship with God because I can be racing around doing the Lord's work, be so busy that I never get time to read the Bible or pray because in a church even of this size... There's always something else for me to be doing. A whole bunch of things that people want me to do or expect me to do that aren't bad things. So many of them very good things, but there's a point where I've got to stand back and say, look, I'm really sorry, but no. So there are things that are a priority that God has ordained to be of first importance. 
And those things really can't be neglected. The same is true for you. Your list will look a little different. Other things that you're called to do is that I'm not called to do. But I want to give you permission to live out of conviction and not guilt. Conviction comes from God. Guilt comes from people. And I'm wanting to give you permission, freedom today, to stay focused on the things that God says are the most urgent priorities for your life right now. You need to be like Nehemiah. You need to be discerning. Not just assume that every person necessarily has the purest and most noble of motives. I guess you'd have hoped that Nehemiah's enemies would have got the message and would have left him alone. As we read on, we see that's not what happens. They merely step up their attacks and make them personal. They decide to try and disgrace him and discredit him by destroying his reputation. Verse 5, then the fifth time, you kind of think they would have got the message by now, the fifth time Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter. Let me explain this. An unsealed letter, an open letter, is really very dangerous. In that day, letters, much like they are today, would have been sealed and closed. So if I wrote a letter to you, I'd seal it, it would be delivered to you, only you could break the seal and read it. An unsealed letter, an open letter, meant that anyone and everyone could open it up and read it. It was public knowledge. And the whole purpose of this letter to Nehemiah was to discredit and disgrace him. Basically, it was a smear campaign. The fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, I guess it must have been true, (laughs) that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, let us meet together. In other words, they're claiming that Nehemiah is starting a rebellion. He's starting a takeover. He's wanting to usurp the true king's authority. They're challenging his very motivation. He has his own personal agenda. It's really all about him. It's a complete distortion of the facts. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The Bible's pretty clear about Nehemiah's real motivation. If you remember, he was broken-hearted about the condition of his city, and he desperately, desperately, desperately wanted to see it restored. It was nothing to do with his glory. It's all about God's glory. So how does he respond? Verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. First thing he does, he refutes the lies. You're just making it up. Additionally, he exposes their motives. They were all trying to frighten us. Thirdly, he prays for strength. He says, God, 
strengthen my hands. I know for a fact, there are days when you just don't feel like you have the strength to keep on going. Those are the times when you need to go to God for strength. Those of you, maybe who are struggling right now, I believe today God is wanting to come to you with his strength. I want to urge you to receive strength from him. Before we move on, I also want to appeal to you not to pass on gossip about others. That's kind of the modern day equivalent of an unsealed and open letter. I want to say to you, don't enter into it. And please, whatever you do, don't rush to judgment on others without knowing all the facts. I'll also say, when someone is disgraced, don't rejoice in it. Because a lot of us secretly do. We can be all smug when others fail. Don't let that happen. I mean, it's just a pretty warped way of thinking to derive some kind of satisfaction from other people falling. Don't gloat over them. He said, why don't you pray for them? Second strategy of the enemy is to disgrace us. Third thing we see here is the strategy of deceit. Verse 10, one day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Now, if you're Nehemiah, how many of you at this point, you'd be like, that's it. I mean, I'm done. This is over. I mean, I could cope with the distractions. I could just about manage the attempts to disgrace me. But now they're coming to kill me. I mean, I'm done. I'm out. Nehemiah responds, verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realised that God hadn't sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He'd been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this and then they would give me a bad name just to discredit me. Here's what's happening. Nehemiah's opponents... They find a prophet, bribe him, and say, go and lie to Nehemiah, freak him out, tell him to go and hide in the temple, and then we will discredit him for disobeying God. But Nehemiah, once again, is incredibly wise. He sees right through their cunning ruse. You see, God has said in the scriptures that no person who's not a designated priest is allowed to enter the temple. Nehemiah isn't a priest. He's a businessman, he's a politician, he's not a priest. So he says, look, I'm sorry, I I just can't do what you're telling me to do because that would be a sin against God's word. I have to think about what's going on here. All of this is pretty twisted. I mean, to try and deceive someone into sinning so you can destroy them. I mean, it's just horrible. But you know what? 
It happens all the time. It happens all the time. John chapter 8 tells us that Satan is a liar. All he does is lie. You're a failure. You should kill yourself. God doesn't love you. Your sins could never be forgiven. Your future has no hope whatsoever. Your past is so dark you could never escape it. These are lies. And if you believe the lies, it will potentially destroy your life. But just like Nehemiah, the way we combat, fight, come against those kinds of lies is with an understanding, a knowledge, a grasp of what God says in his word. Jesus tells us in John 17 that scripture is truth. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we wage war against the counterfeit lies of the enemy with the truth of God's word. That's why there are verses in the New Testament, in Ephesians and in Hebrews, that describes scripture as a sword. It's a vital weapon in our spiritual battle. And so when Satan comes to you with lies, and he will, you respond by knowing scripture and standing on the truth. I'll just try and illustrate what this looks like. Some of you, even now, you are haunted by your sins from the past. And even though maybe you've repented to God, you've come to him repeatedly and told him you're sorry, and you kind of know in your head that Jesus went to the cross and suffered and died in your place. And in your head, you know he forgives you and gives you new life. You know that. You, you've stopped sinning in the ways that you were. You're, you're now trying as best you can to live differently. But it's like you keep being condemned by those voices which come in on behalf of the enemy. Voices that say, you're not forgiven. You're unworthy. You don't belong here. You're worthless. The truth is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in his letter to the Romans. He says that there's nothing you can do have done or will do that could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's no sin that God cannot or will not forgive through the cross of Jesus Christ. And much of your spiritual life is going to be the enemy denying this, trying to rob you of the truth of this. He's going to keep on condemning you and accusing you and lying to you. And you fight it with the sword of God's word. It's like you pull the sword of scripture out of its scabbard and say, no, that's a lie. And that's a half-truth. And that is merely an accusation. And that's a condemnation. That's not what God, what God says in his word. The God of the Bible says that I'm made in his image and his likeness. I have dignity. The God of the Bible says that Jesus died for all my sins, so there is no condemnation, no accusation that can stick. The God of the Bible says, I get a brand new life, and I get to become a new creation in Christ. It's like the old things have passed away. I get to be made new. And so I don't need to believe lies. I don't have to suffer these accusations. 
Don't need to live under condemnation because instead, I have Christ. I stand in him. If the story of Nehemiah teaches us anything, it's that the spiritual battle is real. It's not just enough to become a Christian. You must then fight the good fight of faith. And if you're growing apathetic, or if you're growing weary, you need to stir yourself to stand your ground and fight. You need to maintain a vision that God's call on your life is worth pursuing, and that living for and like and with Jesus really is the only path to lasting and true joy in life. And because it will be a battle, you need to make sure that you're praying and you're reading Scripture, walking in fellowship with other Christians who love you and love Jesus. Nehemiah kept on battling in the face of immense opposition. Until we read finally in verse 15 that he completed the task of rebuilding the walls. So, verse 15, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So the wall was completed. I don't know about you, I was perhaps expecting a little more detail here. I mean, I appreciate this. This is a typical male way of describing it. For a woman, it would be, well, it was a sunny day and people were happy and so-and-so said this and for lunch we ate that and this is what I was wearing. I changed it three times beforehand, but this is what I was wearing. There'd be a whole lot more detail. You get the same thing, I digress slightly, but why not? You get the same thing when a baby's born. You ask a woman, oh, did, did so-and-so have a baby? Yeah, it was nine pounds, seven ounces, it's 47 and a half centimetres long, blonde hair, blue eyes, here's the middle name, here's what the middle name means from the Latin. You, you, you ask a guy, it'll be like, it was a baby. Boy or girl? Yeah, that's right. That's it. You, you, you kind of get the mail summary here. Not a whole lot of detail. We built the wall. So the wall was completed. Oh, you get a bit of detail on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. So how long did it take to rebuild the wall? 52 days. How many years had it been destroyed despite numerous people coming along and trying to rebuild it? 141 years. Nehemiah completes the work in 52 intensive, difficult, exhausting days. It's a wonderful testimony to his determination, his courage, his battling faith. But more than that, it's a testimony to all of us of what can happen with God's help. I love verse 16. Nehemiah says, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. So although he's incredibly successful, Nehemiah remains humble. He responds by giving credit to God. This work has been done with the help of our God. That is also the response of his opponents. They were afraid and they lost their confidence. You know, one of the encouragements that we get from Nehemiah 
is a lot of those people who are opposing him, as soon as he's finished the work, they just become silent. I think this is a really helpful principle for us. If we'll just keep on obediently and humbly walking with God, the fruit of our lives will in the end be our greatest defence. However, we also see here is that not all the opponents, not all the critics are silenced, which leads us to perhaps the ugliest of all the strategies that are used by the devil, namely disloyalty. Verse 17, also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Arar, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshalam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah kept on sending letters to intimidate me. I'll tell you, disloyalty is a wicked and a cruel weapon. It appears that a lot of the people here who apparently supported Nehemiah were actually secretly bound by oath to Tobiah, his enemy. And to make matters worse, according to most Bible commentators, Tobiah is probably part of the same religion as Nehemiah. He's a Jew as well. So Nehemiah, he's accomplished this incredible task. And even the unbelievers come along and they say, wow, that's a phenomenal miracle. God has surely helped this guy. He he couldn't have pulled this off on his own. And all the time, Tobiah should have been there supporting Nehemiah and cheering him on. But in reality, he was one of his greatest opponents. And even now, now that the work's finished, you kind of hope that he might repent. He might go to Nehemiah and say, look, you know what? I've said a whole lot of bad things. I've done a whole load of bad things. But it's obvious to me now that I was wrong. You were right. God's with you. And I'm sorry. But he never does that. He never repents. He never once apologizes. Never says he's sorry. Worse than that, He continues to oppose Nehemiah. He continues, even to the end, to smear Nehemiah's reputation. He sends out these letters to make himself look like a hero and make Nehemiah look like a loser. Now, here's my point. A lot of us, to varying degrees, will have critics and opponents in our life who simply never go away. It'd be nice if every once in a while they repented. It'd be nice if occasionally they said they were sorry. It'd be nice if they used from time to time their efforts to support us instead of opposing us. Now don't hear me wrong. If you're in sin, someone should come against you. Someone should rebuke you if they really love you. But if you're walking faithfully with God, you kind of hope that those who love you would encourage you. And I know for some of you, this is incredibly painful. Because there are people in your life that you'd hope would be for you, but they're against you. Your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, 
family, friends, co-workers. Let me also say that there may be nothing that you can do about that. They may just be hard-hearted like Tobiah. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I'd encourage you, make every effort to live at peace with others. But I'd also say that peace requires two people coming together. And sometimes people have just decided that they're not going to support you no matter what. Tobiah was that kind of a person. And it's horrible. But you've got to learn to bear it. If someone lets you down, it is going to hurt. But you mustn't allow bitterness to take root. Because that's going to give the enemy the ultimate victory. So we've seen four of the strategies of the enemy. Distraction. Disgrace. Deception. Disloyalty. But I don't want to end there. I want to close by pointing you towards Jesus. You see, Jesus is God. And he came down from heaven to live a life on the earth. A bit like Nehemiah, he had a clear sense of purpose. He had a clear mission. And a bit like Nehemiah as well, every attempt was made to distract him from his mission. His mission of going to the cross and dying for our sins. His reputation was disgraced. Horrible things were said about Jesus that were totally untrue. Furthermore, Satan himself came to spiritually deceive him. And one of his closest friends, Judas, proved disloyal, betraying him to death. He endured all the same kinds of nonsense as Nehemiah, and even more. Yet Jesus persisted on his mission of obedience to the Father, even though it was hard and incredibly painful. And I'm sure there must have been days when he woke up and he thought it was just too much to bear. But out of love for us, Jesus persevered all the way to the cross to pay for sins through his death. Now if you're here today and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, here's the deal. You're a sinner There's no other way of putting it, really. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. All of us, together, we're so bad, God had to die. And that's our only hope for salvation. And I'm not going to lie to you. If you become a Christian, your problems probably won't go away. In fact, odds are, they'll probably get worse, because obedience, most of the time, is a whole lot more difficult than disobedience. But if you confess your sins to Jesus, he will forgive you. And he will walk through life with you. I've walked with him for nearly 35 years. And I can honestly say, genuinely, really, there is no one like Jesus. You need to give your life to Jesus. In a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to do just that. And for those of you who are Christians, and I guess there are some of you here who are Christians, maybe some of you need to search your heart, and if you find any evidence whatsoever in you of a self-righteous, critical, arrogant, judgmental spirit, I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent. 
For others of you, maybe you need a resolve to get back on track. Make it more of a priority to live the life that you know God has called you to. And it's hard work a lot of the time. But you can't be a disciple of Jesus without picking up your cross and following him, suffering as he did. But the good news is that God will come to you in the midst of the battle. He does come to us in the midst of the battle. He strengthens us by his Holy Spirit. Maybe you've been wounded at the hands of those who have been disloyal or those who have sought to damage you. I believe God wants to bring healing to some of you today. Or maybe the enemy, he's lied to you. And you've ended up believing some of those lies. And today you need to take a stand and you need to say, no more. I'm going to live in the truth of who I am in Christ. I'm going to live in the good of that from this point on. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray. And to start off with, I want to just leave some space for you to pray your own personal response to God. Not out loud, but just personally where you are, in your head. Maybe you're here today and and you want to become a Christian. You want to become a follower of Jesus. In your own words, just where you are, in your mind, I want to encourage you to speak to him and say you want to follow him. Maybe you're here and you just recognize that in the story of Nehemiah, you maybe not so much like Nehemiah, you're more like some of the opponents in your attitudes and your actions. I want to give you space, time right now to repent of that. Maybe some of you need to use this time to just resolve before God that you're going to get back on track. Maybe you've lost sight of some of the priorities he has for you. Now's your chance to say to him, no God, I'm I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Leave some space now, quietly where you are, for you to respond.